Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. Throughout this series, one name has cropped up in conversations about literary biographies that sets the gold standard for the genre. That name is Hermione Lee, the British author of acclaimed biographies of Virginia Woolf, Edith Wharton, Penelope Fitzgerald and more. Now, in a first for her, she's tackled a living subject. British playwright Tom Stoppard picked her for the job in 2013, despite his profound suspicion of biography. Stoppard, who came to Britain from Czechoslovakia as a child, is widely acknowledged as one of the most brilliant and intellectually dazzling writers of the 20th century, known for his big idea themes and his acrobatic verbal wit in plays like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, Jumpers, Travesties, The Real Inspector Hound, Arcadia, and most recently, Leopoldstadt. There are also works for television and film, including the screenplay for Shakespeare in Love, for which he won an Oscar. His life is one of fabulous and often glamorous success, personally and professionally. He rides increasing waves of achievement with ease, lubricated by his famous charm. Spielberg calls. Wives and lovers part with him on good terms. Mick Jagger sends him wine for Christmas. Hermione Lee has the mental agility for her subject and dives deep into Stoppard's life and work with enthusiasm and stamina. No detail is too small for her attention, whether she's writing about the often daunting multiple strands of his plays, which combine history, science and art, or the guest list of his prodigious parties. It's all there, and it's quite a banquet to digest. I spoke to Hermione, who is technically Professor Dame Hermione, which sounds very Harry Potter, via Zoom at her home in Oxford, where she's the president of Wolfson College and the founder of the Centre for Life Writing. She began by telling me that she knew Stoppard slightly through mutual friends when he approached her at one of his famously lavish parties. Yes, I didn't know uh, Stoppard all that well. I knew him a little bit socially and I'd I'd introduced him at a lecture in Oxford and things like that. And we'd had a conversation in Oxford. He'd come to get an honorary degree in Oxford and we'd had a sort of joshing, rather teasing conversation about biography. And I think arising out of that, he said to me, you know that conversation we had about biography? Um, well, would you? And... I, I immediately knew what he meant and I immediately said yes without pausing for thought because wouldn't you? Um, and then I immediately thought, my goodness, this is a challenge. Um, and it went on from there. It was one of those, as he would call it, a sort of lucky throw of the dice, really. Well, we're going to come to the theme of luck because it's so central later on. But I just want to ask you to talk a little bit about his attitude to biography, because obviously when you had had that conversation in Oxford before, it must have been a sort of um, bantering, jousting about the fact that he uses biography a lot. For example, he read the Richard Elman biography of Joyce when he was researching Travesties, one of his great and most famous plays. But he detests the idea of being the subject of biography. So can you talk about that a bit? Well, his characters detest the idea often. Um, and he's very funny. He has them be very funny uh, about biography. One has to 
be careful, as I've discovered when writing about a playwright, because the opinions of the characters are not necessarily the opinions of the writer. In fact, far from it often. But yes, there is certainly a theme running through, which basically can be summed up by something he said when we were on a platform together, actually, in in New York at the 92nd Street Y, and I was about to interview him and I had all my questions ready. Uh, And I asked him the first question and he said, before I answer that, I just want to say, you know the writer who said biography adds a new terror to death? Well, here she is. (laughs) (laughs) And obviously thinking of Oscar Wilde, who is a character who is very rude about biography in the wonderful play The Invention of Love. Um, There's a marvellous play called Indian Ink, or In the Native State, radio and theatre, where an old lady says to a would-be biographer, biography is the worst excuse for getting people wrong. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that line, because I don't actually know what that means. Oh, well, you know, you can pretend that you've got all the authentication um, and that you're allowed to do it and that you're writing in this magisterial way with all the information. And so your excuse is that you are the authorised biographer, as it were. But that's not a good excuse, given that you're more than likely to get your person completely wrong, as indeed everybody does during the course of uh, of that play around the character of the poet uh, Flora. But yes, yeah, so there is there there has been, particularly I think in the eighties and nineties, when he was enormously famous. He still is, of course, but everything was coming at him, and I think quite a few people have come at him over the years, wanting to write his biography and he's he's quite a private person actually um as well as being enormously social and and gregarious and I think he did have a sort of horror of it and it's certainly the case that once he decided to to do it to get someone to do it and obviously asking someone in your lifetime is a way of making sure that it's going to be the kind of book you hope it you hope it will be that doesn't always work out of course There are many cases where that hasn't worked out. In this case, I think it seems to have worked out. uh, Beckett, Samuel Beckett, said to his first biographer, I will neither help nor hinder. And Stoppard both helped and didn't hinder. Okay, but I wanted to ask you, um, it is a very warm and affectionate uh, portrait of him. Some reviewers have called it forgiving. I'm not sure about the use of that word, but you do share some mutual friends. There is a little bit of overlap of your social and intellectual circles. And I wondered whether you worried whether that would be too cosy, whether there was a danger in that. I didn't really know him at all well. And I'm also not a sort of fully paid up theatre person. I mean, I love the theatre and I'm interested in the theatre, but I wasn't, as it were, you know, the kind of person you would have expected to write a life of Tom Stoppard in in that, as you know, I've always written about novelists before this. So I don't think it was a sort of arm in arm relationship. I did worry about the fact that as I went my rounds talking to people, uh, it became apparent to me that he is very much loved. He is very much loved and admired and respected. And it's quite hard to find people in the theatre world, which is not free of spite and malice, um, to say a a bad word about him. And I did did realise there was sort of part of me that was thinking, oh, I wish I could find an enemy. (laughs) 
And I didn't really find an enemy, actually. I did talk to Peter Nichols, alas, now dead, who was clearly very jealous of him and actually, you know, wrote about that. Uh, And he was quite sort of, he was quite sharp about him. And I talked to David Hare, particularly interestingly, David Hare is a great friend of, of Stoppard's and mutually they admire each other very much. But David Hare was very much aware of the sort of, the kind of left wing royal court mantra that Tom Stoppard belonged to the establishment and they never ever wanted to put on a play by Stoppard and when they did when they put on rock and roll which was a huge hit there were people at the royal court who were very unhappy about that so yes he's much loved and that was one of the stories I needed to tell and I think some yeah you're right some reviewers thought it was a bit too indulgent but it's it's hard when you're writing about a fundamentally very decent and and much admired person So one of the challenges, you said that you were not a theatre person, you were not part of the kind of lovey circle, if you like. It seems to me that it was an enormous task to take on the whole world of theatre, its cultural and social context and the other key players of his generation. So you have to talk about Beckett, you have to talk about Pinter, as well as wrapping your head around the themes of the plays themselves, which include chaos theory and quantum physics. Now, when it came to things like the themes of the plays, did he explain them to you? Or how did you go (laughs) about that very close reading where you tease out the themes? That's two questions, really, because there's a question about (laughs) the whole... No, and they are completely knotted together, but there's a question about the whole theatre world. Um, And... I didn't want to write a history of British theatre in the 20th and 21st century because that's been done and will be done again and it's not my bailiwick. So I think what I did with that was to not, if you if you know what I mean, not to generalise. This is an interesting thing about biography in itself, to to be, as it were, empirical, that is to take the evidence I needed to write about at the point at which it comes up in the story. So at the point at which he has his first meeting with Pinter, um, which is very funny because Pinter's sitting behind him at a student production of the birthday party and Stoppard is overwhelmed by this fact. He's about 19 years old, you know, and he turns around and he says, are you Harold Pinter or do you just look like him? And Pinter goes, what? (laughs) And as as Stoppard tells it, he says, I think I fainted. Um, so and then they later on, they became actually very good friends and they didn't fall out in the way that Pinter did fall out with many people, though their politics were, were very different. So at the moments when that arose in the story, I would be writing about Pinter and, you know, comparisons between them, but not, if you like, not as an essay in in the book, but as it arose. So there were many things that... I must have missed out about the history of British theatre and the context. for. But if, you know, as things arose, that's when I wrote about them. And so I hope that, that there was enough of that material there. The other part of your question about the astonishing number of areas of knowledge that he covers, this is a person, you know, if I had to use three words about the contents of this book, it would be language, knowledge and feeling. And knowledge, you know, it's wanting to know that it's wanting to know that makes us matter. Otherwise, we're going out the way we came in. That's Hannah in Arcadia, and I took that as the epigraph of my 
book, I find that one of the most moving lines in the whole of Stoppard's work. Um, and yes, he wants to know. He wants to know about 18th century landscape gardening and chaos, chaos theory and quantum physics and the law of entropy and Russian revolutionaries and so on. So some of those things were easier for me to acquire than others. Um, I was I felt very much at home with the, you know, the history of taste in landscaping or with Isaiah Berlin's views of the 19th century early Russian revolutionaries, that kind of, or with Hausmann in Invention of Love. I felt much more at home with that than I did with with quantum physics in Hapgood, for instance. So, but the short answer to your question is that no, he didn't explain anything to me at all. Uh, he would mention what he had been reading. So when I started the work, he was working on the heart problem. And the title is taken from David Chalmers' work on theories of consciousness. And the play is about, partly about, theories of consciousness. And some of the early, early conversations that I had with him, he would say, have you read, do you know what the hard problem is? Have you read David Chalmers? To which the answer was always, no, I haven't a clue, tell me. <laughs> um, but what he was doing was not explaining to me, he was testing me out as a sort of lay member of the audience, i.e. he was thinking to himself, if a fairly intelligent person like this with a broad education hasn't heard of David Chalmers' theories of consciousness, I'm going to have to explain this a bit more in the play. That's what he was doing. So given his interest in systems, I was wondering whether he became interested in the patterns that you deciphered in his work and the way you bring themes together. So you you do wonderful riffs on things like the way time recurs, for example, as a theme in the work or the, or the theme of loss. So was he curious at any point to find out how you see him? He wasn't, he didn't show any interest at all in my ideas or how I might be thinking about him. I think he didn't want to know, and I certainly didn't want to tell him. Um, but he was curious about structural questions, and he is a, he's a pragmatist of the theatre. Uh, very often I would find myself thinking I would, have into, would be having an intellectual conversation with him about philosophy or something, and we ended up instead having a conversation about how he'd had to cut three and a half minutes from the second scene in the first act of something in order to get it in on time. You know, he thinks very much, as well as being this extraordinary thinker, but he's very practical and pragmatic. So he was interested in things like, how was I going to start, how had I started the book? Um, and how was I incorporating material? Uh, he was interested in my systems of practice rather than my systems of thought and he gave me one very good lead which is about the writing of a biography of a living person so this is a person who's done a million interviews in his life and you know there are millions of interviews as I know um and I was interviewing him I'd, I had probably a dozen really long conversations with him where nothing was off the table he just sat there and waited to see what I would ask him and sometimes I'd get an interesting response and sometimes he was clearly rather bored with that line of questioning because he'd had it so often and at one point early on he said to me you're not gonna 
you're not going to quote these interviews, are you? Because then it will just be like a piece of journalism. It will be like all the other things that have been written about. And I thought, he's absolutely right. That's a very, very good lead. And what I need to do is invent a kind of narrative which which is almost like sort of free indirect speech, which uses what he's told me, but doesn't say, on the 31st of August 2015, Tom Stoppard said to me as we were sitting in his sitting room, you know, so I I made a kind of narrative for the book where every single thing that is said is referenced. There's a footnote to which interview it was. I mean, the footnotes are enormous because I wanted to reference absolutely everything because I didn't want to be caught out by people saying, I never said that. And I wanted to be able to say, no, look, here it is. And that's the reason for that. But the narrative doesn't appear to be a set of interviews with him. Going back to that sort of systems and organisational thing, which he's interested in, I'm interested in it too, because I'm always interested in process. And I always find the research side can get away from you so easily when you're starting to need to cross-reference and you're doing a lot of synthesising in this book. So how did you keep track of all your themes? Did you have a list of key words for things that kept getting bigger and bigger and more important that you were having to weave together? I didn't have themed files, but in my head, as I was writing, I could feel certain things becoming tremendously important, like memory and time and the way in which repeatedly critics had said, oh, he's so dazzling, he's so heartless, he doesn't have a real emotional depth, and how over and over again that was proved not to be the case. And... I suppose the reason I didn't, I mean, I like the sound of that biographer that you're describing who has organised their material in that way. I I wish I was that biographer. But I think I don't start from a thematic perspective. I I think I worm my way into a writer's life, whether they be dead or alive, and see where that writing takes me. I think, I think I'm rather resistant to the idea that I start with a set of themes or propositions about, about a subject. So, in fact, what you're saying there, Hermione, makes it sound much more organic and fluid. And I was wondering whether you think there's a certain kind of porosity between your books where certain habits from one book carry over to another. I mean, this is a bit of a long bow, perhaps, but I was very struck by the detail that you bring to describing the interiors of every house that Stoppard has lived in. And in fact, at one point, you tell us what one of the houses looks like after three sets of owners have lived there after the Stoppards have left. And I thought, that is so Edith Wharton. I thought, in Edith Wharton land, you need to tell us about the interiors because that opulence of her life translates to her books and is all about class and status, etc. So do you think that you've unconsciously carried over a Wharton habit into your Stoppard book? Actually, it's funny because I did sometimes think when I was writing about Stoppard, that of all the other people I've written about, the one he reminded me of the most, actually, in some cases, was Edith Wharton, because of this enormous life, because of this enormous range of of people um, and these somewhat grand interiors, though 
there is grandeur and grandeur. No, I'm very interested in the shells that people build around them and the reasons why that happens. And I'm very interested in who takes the lead, as it were, in when a house is being designed or furnished, which people in the house are sort of taking the lead. Um, At the same time as my book on Stoppard came out, a a book that I'd co-edited with Kate Kennedy called Lives of Houses came out, which is a set of essays and poems by different writers about the kind of biography of houses and I'm I'm very fascinated by that so yes I got into a bit of trouble with my descriptions of Ivor Grove um you know during and after the stoppards were living there but I did obviously go there and I, I was completely fascinated by this astonishing house which is an enormous mansion with many outbuildings and and this was a point at which their his and Miriam Stoppard's lives were you know pretty high-toned and lavish and it was the lavishness I think I wanted to capture the lavishness as with Wharton I wanted to get that lavishness and my only way of doing that is to get you inside the rooms and try to let you feel what it would have been like to be inside those rooms. At one stage he seems to get quite a sort of penchant for having his portrait painted. And then there's another sort of very telling little detail where you say that he commissions the artist who's painted one of his portraits to also do a book plate for their library. And I did think, is this rampant vanity and ego? I I don't think it's rampant vanity and ego. I think it's a, a almost rather childlike or gleeful relish in the power of money which he hadn't had until suddenly overnight almost when at the age of 29 uh, after a long hard slog at trying his hand at various forms of writing um, he became a huge worldwide success and I describe almost comically, I think, in the book, how his finances change overnight from sort of borrowing the odd tenor here and there from his agent, his friends, um, to suddenly being swamped with with money. Um, luckily, his brother, a very level-headed accountant, kept his account. So that was very good and said, what you've got to do is keep some back for the tax, <laughs> which was a useful thing to be told right at the beginning. Um so he spent on things that were just a dream of pleasure and excitement for him to spend on, like first editions of T.S. Eliot or, you know, Hemingway. Uh, he's a great Hemingway fan. Lots of book buying, a, an account at Hatchard's, you know, lots of very fancy clothes in the 1970s, um, you know, Mr. Fish and all kinds of trendy, you know, flamboyant clothes. I'm glad that you mentioned the clothes because I know this is going completely over the top in a Freudian sense, but I thought that it was fascinating that here was a man whose parents had been associated with a cheap um, form of footwear that was mass produced in the uh, town in Czechoslovakia where Tom was born. The Bata shoe factory was like, I suppose, round trees would be to York. Um, And then at the height of success, what does he do? He goes and gets a pair of handmade shoes from the shoemaker who makes the shoes for Prince Charles. (laughs) Yes, I hadn't made the connection, but I'm sure you're right. (laughs) One good thing is that he told his mother 
to burn papers, but fortunately she didn't. And if there's one person who emerges, I think, as the kind of, um, well, she's sort of not by design, but she is the sort of hero in a way of the book, because I feel that in the letters between mother and son that you quote from, I feel that I'm seeing his most authentic self. Would you agree? I'm so glad you said that about her, Marta Streusler, or as she became Bobby Stoppard. I mean, her whole name changed as well as her whole life. She was the heroine of the book to me, and it was clear that they had an extremely close and loving relationship. And as you say, he wrote her a weekly letter, whether or not they'd been on the phone as well, between about 1948 and 1996 when she died. This was an astonishing resource, which I have to say did not arrive in my lap for a little while because it took a, going back to what we were talking about earlier about his dislike of biography, it did take a while for him to settle down to the fact that I was actually doing this. And I, he did help a lot, but I didn't get some of the materials until quite well into the process. So this enormous cache of these amazing letters didn't surface until about three years into the process. So I did have to go back and rewrite uh, quite a lot with with these letters. And I also had to date them because they are almost all undated. So in a way, it was quite a good thing they turned up quite late because by then I knew enough to be able to date them from internal evidence. I would have been floundering, I think, if I'd had them right at the beginning. But he's writing to his mother, so he doesn't tell her everything. And he's writing to a person who is an, a worrier. She was a worrier. She would be very anxious about him. All kinds of things would worry her. And that's part of the main plot, actually, of the, of the story, her anxieties and her fears and the way she covered her past when she came to England. Um, so he doesn't tell her, you know, when his first and second marriages are breaking up. He doesn't talk to her about that. He, he wants to tell her that he's OK. He wants to reassure her. And he also gives her a kind of diary uh, of what he's up to and what he's doing. And he's very funny about a lot of the things. And he's quite cutting and, you know, wicked sometimes about some of the people and some of the things he's doing. It's an amazing resource for a biographer to have. It is. And so was there anything in there that was so gossipy or bitchy or indiscreet that you couldn't possibly use it, but you were terribly tempted? He he was the thing he was most jumpy about, um, and he often said this when I was at work, were anything to do with his sons. Not that he is gossipy or bitchy about them, but anything personal about the lives of his sons. He wanted really to be in as, as much as possible off limits. And I thought that was perfectly proper. You know, I'm not writing their life story and it's not their fault they're the son of a famous playwright, you know. So I, I told the story of their childhoods, of course, because that's where, you know, I wanted to show him as a dad. And that's an incredibly important part of his of his personality and his life. But then I just left their I, I left their stories in the background, you know, once they'd left home, as it were, because it wasn't, you know, it was nothing to do with me, really. Um, so that I obeyed. Um, and then he was very jumpy about if he'd been cutting or critical about another, you know, about other people's plays or about any particular actors. He didn't want me 
to put that in. So there were probably two or three occasions in which I found something that was quite fierce about um, another playwright, possibly, and I didn't put it in. I was obeying orders at that point. And probably if he'd been dead and I'd been writing it, I would have put those things in. When I'd finished, there was a contract between us, a kind of biographer-subject contract, which is that he would give me access uh, and he would agree to read the typescript for matters of fact. And matters of fact, of course, is a very nice question when you're writing biography, you know, what is a matter of fact? So we did indeed have a whole day in which I very apprehensively sat with him in, in, his, in his room while my typescript was full of post-it notes and we turned over every page of my typescript. It was a quite an extraordinary experience and he said, I don't think that's right. And the only thing in this large typescript that he asked me to change was the following. There had been a production of an older play in which one of the actors had to be let go because it simply wasn't working. And the reason I put this story in was because Tom Stoppard was involved with that process and hated being involved with that process. And I had named the actor. And when we got to that page, uh, Stoppard said, do you have to name him? And so I took that out and I thought, that's pretty good, actually. That's the only thing he's asked me to censor. Yes, and I think you've said in another interview, apropos that anecdote, that you thought that that showed a kind of nobility, and I like the use of that word. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you, I wasn't going to ask you this next, but since we're talking about actors, I saw Rufus Sewell in Rock and Roll, and on the night that I saw it, he got himself into a terrible tangle with one of the great monologues, I think, in Act Two, um, and he dried, and he had to request the prompter twice it was excruciating and it really put the audience on edge did you find that in talking to actors about performing stopper did anyone say to you this material is so dense it is so difficult to learn and to kind of ingest that it's it's a terrifying challenge did anyone say to you that they hated doing stoppard Nobody said that to me, but I have read things and put things in the book about actors who found it almost intolerable. Um, Nigel Hawthorne in Hapgood absolutely hated it and he hated the way it was being directed. He hated the way Tom Stoppard was expecting people to understand what was going on without proper explanations and he wrote a really vituperative letter to Stoppard about what a horrible experience it had been, and he was never in another Stoppard play. Um, Felicity Kendall told me how extremely difficult Hapgood had been and how also Stoppard had kept changing it all the time. So you'd be in your dressing room before the first preview, as it were, and a little note would come under the door saying, I hope you don't mind, I just need you to put this extra line in here. Um, Simon Russell Beale told me that when he was doing a revival of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern with um, Adrian Scarborough, they found themselves going round, you know, the repeated games, the word games, like tennis matches in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And he said, we did find ourselves going round one of those three times. (laughs) 
Let's go back to that theme of luck because it is so important and so central uh, in in this telling of his life uh, and and in the way his life unfolds. It's ironic in a way that Bobby, his mother, was such a warrior because he's led such a charmed existence. Um, do you think that his sense of being fortunate himself, which he does appreciate, is heightened by the sort of sliding doors, what ifness that if he'd stayed in Czechoslovakia, luck would have been pretty thin on the ground and would not have played such a part in his life? Yes, that's absolutely key to the whole story. Uh, you're quite right. And um, I called the last chapter of the book a charmed life, because that phrase, which he had so often used himself, is used deep, with deep irony in Leopoldstadt, his most recent play, which brings this story into onto the stage. So, yes, he, he spent his whole life saying and talking about himself as a lucky man, talking about himself as having a charmed life, even though he had a, what could be described as a very traumatic childhood in that the family left Czechoslovakia because of the Nazi invasion when he was a, a baby, really, um, a toddler. They went to Singapore and then the Japanese invaded. His father, Eugen Stroessler, the Jewish doctor from, from Czechoslovakia, was killed by the Japanese while they were all trying to get out. His mother had to take her two little boys on this astonishing journey. She thought she was going to Australia but the, at Colombia, the you know they lost all their things, and they turned out they were going to India, and they got taken in by the Bacha people in India, and then she ended up running the shoe shop in Darjeeling, while the boys went to a, an American missionary school where they spoke English. During that period of time, he found out that his father had been killed, but he didn't really feel anything because he didn't really remember his father. And then his mother married an English major, uh, Ken Stoppard who took them to England and to safety, and that's clearly one of the reasons she married him. Uh, and so Stoppard arrived in England at the age of eight, where he said, I put on Englishness like a coat. And from then on, you know, was extremely grateful to and, of, and loving of his adoptive country. And he became Tom Stoppard. And the whole story of being Czech and being Jewish, and the extent to which he was Jewish, he never really thought about properly or found out about properly for a very long time, mainly because his mother resolutely put her past behind her. She didn't speak Czech at home. Stoppard doesn't speak Czech. She didn't talk about her past. She didn't tell her children that many of her family had been killed in the Holocaust. And he only discovered this about three years before she died, when he was in his 50s. He met a cousin who told him the, the story of the family. He said to her, are, are we Jewish? Uh, how Jewish are we? That kind of question. <laughs> she said, well, of course we're Jewish. And she drew the family tree on a, on a napkin in the restaurant of the National Theatre where they had met. His mother was there for this lunch. It was a sort of family reunion. She was looking very uncomfortable. And... Only then did he find out the story and the cousin told him the names of the camps where these family relations had died. And he writes up, after his mother dies in 1996, he writes up that encounter in a piece for Talk magazine, a short-lived, trendy magazine. Um, and the piece was given the title On Turning Out to be Jewish. 
and he records that encounter as if it's a scene in a play. And then many decades later, it becomes a scene in a play. That is a scene in, at the end of Leopoldstadt. So it took him all that time to write that story. And Leopoldstadt came into being because he started to question this concept of himself as having had a charmed life. That's all very well to go around saying that. But what of the people who didn't have a charmed life? Mm. Why had he not thought about that? Mm. So it's a sense, it's a kind of late sense of survivor's guilt almost. Yes, I'm really glad that you put it that way because I was having great difficulty in understanding why a man of such incredible intellect and curiosity had not asked the question sooner. But now I can see sort of why it took him so long. I think it's part of his deep affection and admiration for his mother, that he didn't want to trouble her that he didn't want to worry her. And he did, and she did, I mean, in the 70s, he became extremely active. There was a sort of theory about Stoppard that he was apolitical and that he was a sort of dandy um, and that he was, you know, right-wing. None of that, from quite early on, that stops ringing true, really, in that he became extremely involved, for instance, with the cause of the Soviet refuseniks, the Soviet Jews that wanted to get out and were being persecuted and, you know political prisoners who were being put in mental hospitals. Um, uh, and that comes out in plays like Every Good Boy Deserves Favour and, and Professional Foul. Marvellous, marvellous plays. Um, and he was very... Uh, he was very public about his support for these causes because you have to be. That's the whole point of the support. You have to gather newspaper attention. And his mother, as one can see from these letters was tremendously anxious about that. She somehow still felt that there could be persecution in this in England, and she felt when they arrived that there could be anti-Semitism in England. And was she right? He's perceived to be Thatcher's favourite playwright in as much as she ever goes to the theatre, that is. Um, and he refuses to sort of espouse the causes of playwrights like David Hare. But then it seems to me that central in that shift to a more progressive, more liberal kind of politics is the friendship with Václav Havel. Would you agree that Havel would have had something to do with that? I mean, it's so frustrating that you didn't get to meet him and ask him about that because, of course, by the time you were anointed, Havel had died. Long gone, yeah. And one of the great figures in, in Stoppard's life, clearly, and a kind of alternative identity for him almost in that he was always thinking what if I had stayed in Czechoslovakia what if I had been that person and that part that you saw Rufus Sewell drying up in was the, the part of Jan in rock and roll which acts out that alternative life and in in the manuscript he was going to be called Thomas that character um yes he he was not only the darling of the Thatcherites, he was the darling of Thatcher. I mean, as was Miriam Stoppard, who did a famous interview with, with Margaret Thatcher, where in which Margaret Thatcher shed a tear or two. Um, <laughs> and, you know, if you, if you have had the childhood that he'd had and are counting yourself lucky to have arrived at the safety of English traditions, of a free press, of a democracy, of a place where you can write what you like and are not going to be embargoed or thrown into 
prison or a mental hospital. And if you look at what's happening in the Eastern Bloc at that time during the Cold War, and then you see a lot of revolutionary students, you know, um, talking about, you know, fascist, quasi-fascist government in the West, then clearly you're going to not be in sympathy. You're unlikely to be in sympathy with that. Um, He was also, as a a journalist, and being a journalist was an enormously important part of it. it, was his university. He didn't go to university. He went to Bristol and became a journalist. And he loved that whole sense of being you know, reporting on the world as it is and, and being in touch with his readers and so on. He loved all that. And he had a real loathing for the power of the print unions um, in the 70s and 80s. Of course, Thatcher was out to crush that power and he was all for that. Looking back, his views have profoundly changed on that. And he, I think, has a horror of the kind of, I mean, he'd been involved in the all the debates about the Leveson inquiry and he has a horror of the the power, the disgusting, amoral power of sort of big newspaper moguls. So yes, his his views have shifted. Most people's views tend to go rightwards, as it were, in their old age. And I think you're right that he has become uh, he says now he would vote green. And he's voted in many, many different ways over over the years. Regarding his overall sort of sensibility, there was a a lovely quote in the book, which I think is really important, which he he says at one point to his friend Isabel, who's a sort of in his young life, he's madly in love with her, but it's not reciprocated. Uh, And there is a correspondence there. So you you get the benefit of that. All my inclinations, artistic, personal, ethic and moral, prefer reticence to over-explicitness. Over-explicitness embarrasses me. Can you just talk about that a little bit in relation to the work? I think in relation to the work, it may sound paradoxical because he's such a loquacious playwright. Um, But there there is certainly most of the time, a resistance to explicit autobiography. I mean, there are many places where you can find him in his plays. You can find him in the speeches of Henry, the playwright in The Real Thing, talking about the value of good language, for instance, and many other such places. Um, You know, he does often give some of the best lines and the most eloquent speeches to people who, in real life, he would profoundly disagree with so he is distributing himself amongst his characters he's he's not telling you he's reticent about his own point of view Turgenev the playwright in Coast of Utopia who is the character one one is drawn by so he keeps being asked by people well what's your view on that what's you know which side do you take and and uh, are you not on this side or that side and Turgenev says on the contrary I take every possible side and there's an early spoof documentary of Stoppard when he'd become famous, which is called where he has himself being interviewed by a very persistent interviewer who keeps saying, what do you, what do you think about the Vietnam War? What do you think about it? And he says, I don't know. Um, and it's called Tom Stoppard Doesn't Know, um, <laughs> which at one point I thought would be a good title for the book. And then I decided, <laughs> no, that's not quite right, actually. Um, but... The reticence, I think, is that under the garb of incredible eloquence and loquaciousness and dazzling word smithery and all the rest of it, he's often not telling you what he 
feels. He's resisting the obvious big sentimental scenes. He's quite side-on about romantic scenes. Um, and he's not writing his autobiography on stage in the way that a playwright like John Osborne might be, for instance. Um, and it's not until right at this very end play that there is a scene in which there is clearly a representative of him mm. on the stage and speaking as he would have spoken um, in his life. So I think there's that. And in his life, although he is gregarious and sociable and knows a million people and is very generous towards people, he really likes to be alone. He really likes to be alone in his room, thinking and writing. And... In terms of biography, he repeatedly said to me when I would say, you know, why did you feel that? Or, you know, is that different from what you felt then or something like that? And he would say, I really don't examine myself. <laughs> I asked him if he'd ever been psychoanalyzed. And he gave me a grave look and he said, no. I'm curious about you, Hermione, as a feminist, uh, looking at his um, his attitude to women. He likes them. He clearly likes them. Um, he's had some very amicable breakups of his marriages, which I think is a great testimony to how how much he likes women. You know, there's clearly not just affection there, but respect and regard. He writes great female characters. But then I noticed that when he's asked about um, his favourite writers and even directors, he never mentions a female playwright. I'm waiting all the way through the book for there to be a relationship of equals between him and a woman. Ah, uh, I think then I've misled people in that respect. I should have paid more more attention to writing that up because um, I would immediately call to mind three very, very important working relationships. One is with Sonia Friedman, uh, who's a very close friend and, you know, they often work together and it is she who has been instrumental in the whole process of getting Leopoldstadt on stage and bringing it back. That's a fantastically important working relationship. And then there are... So she's a producer. She's a key producer. Yes, she's a major, major producer. Uh, and then there are two women directors in America, um, Blanca Zizia at in Philadelphia and Carrie Perloff, who until recently ran the ACT, the Actors' um, uh, theatre company in San Francisco. And these have been lifelong working relationships, just as important to him as the relationship with Peter Wood or Trevor Nunn or Richard Eyre. So I'm sorry if I didn't give that enough emphasis. But in terms of his relationships, uh, it's very noticeable. Two things, I think. Uh, one, that he has stayed friends with all his exes, which is quite unusual. So Isabel, the great love of his teenage years, was at his 80th birthday. And that's a very splendid thing, you know, very rare, I think. Um, and the other is that the reason he has fallen in love with most of the women in his life, with the exception of his too early first marriage, which turned out very badly, mm. is that he admires their work. You know, the reason he's fallen in love with with Isabel, who was a fellow journalist, um, with Miriam, who was an amazingly uh, high-achieving doctor and, uh, and later media figure, 
with Felicity Kendall, who'd been he'd been working with for years before they got together with Sinead Cusack. Is similarly, those people were were working, you know, working women of very high caliber. That's something that I appreciate very much as someone who had previously mainly, though not exclusively, written about women. It seems a given now in the world that we live in that people mash up uh, high and low culture all the time. But do you think that he was one of the earliest in his way, in his taste for mixing the high and the low? It's it's a really good question. It's one of the things that amused and interested me about the work. So, you know, this is someone who'll take the idea of a Whitehall farce. There used to be these rather seedy, sexist uh, comedies, um, sort of Brian Ricks and things like that, with people constantly dropping their pyjama bottoms and all, all of this stuff. And, you know, farce, basic farce. And they made huge amounts of money and people would flock to see them. And he had the bright idea in a play called Dirty Linen, of setting a Whitehall farce in Whitehall. I mean, they were called Whitehall farces because they played at the Whitehall Theatre, um, uh, not because they took place in the House of Commons. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so yes, he loves all that. He loved, he loves rock music, and rock music is an important part of some of the plays, especially rock and roll. Obviously, he loved the Goon Show. He loved Monty Python. Um, he said ruefully once. Samuel Beckett never went on Call My Bluff. <laughs> Call My Bluff was a sort of ridiculous, you know, quiz programme. So, yes, he has an appetite for that and it gets into the plays. And so, you know, one of the wonderful early plays, The Real Inspector Hound, is a sort of spoof of an Agatha Christie. So, yes, all that is grist to his mill. So not a snob intellectually. Not at all. There are very few false starts. He doesn't embark on a project and then get stuck and go, nah, that's not going to work. I have to abandon ship. I mean, there are frustrations when he's working in film where he's not in control and he's a gun for hire. But apart from an early play that you mentioned about the journalist Walter Winchell, it doesn't seem to me that there's a lot that just ends up in the bottom drawer. Would I be right? Yes, completely right. He talks about that and says, I don't have a lot in my bottom drawer. And in fact, there are gaps between when he's writing a play before an idea has come to him, when he gets very depressed and fed up and feels nothing's ever going to come to him again. You know, there are quite there are quite severe gaps where an idea hasn't come and he's casting around from an idea and you will hear him in interviews in those periods of time saying, I really don't know where the next play is coming from. And he's clearly downhearted uh, by that. So anything that does come, he will tend to use, you know, he'll tend to be thrilled that an idea has come along and he'll set to work on it. Though it will sometimes take him a long time to get from the initial idea to the first night of the, of the play. There was, a recent in between the hard problem and Leopoldstadt, he had a stab at a play about artificial intelligence, a sort of Pygmalion Galatea kind of idea, and he started it and wrote a scene or two, um, and which I read, uh, and he didn't he didn't like it. He thought it was sort of coy and. Didn't, wasn't working, he didn't like the tone. So that did get set aside, unusually. Towards the end of our conversation, I asked Hermione to comment more generally about biography and its readership. 
I think you've always got more than one kind of audience for biography. Yes, it's a mixture of high and low motives. There are people, and I'm one of these people, you read for the story, you read for the gossip, you read for the famous names, you read, you know. And then there's another part of you that wants to involve yourself with a life that isn't your life. There are many biographies of key figures like like Nelson Mandela, for instance, or Martin Luther King, where there is still that hagiographical concept of the exemplary life, the life that shows you the way that you can live as a hero. And of course, you know, like the lives of saints used to be in, in English biographical, early biographical tradition. And of course, we want that too. We want to be given lessons. We want to be given examples of how we might lead our own lives if we were better people. But we also want the low and the base, and we also want the strange. I mean, I, you started by, early on, you said that I had a, had a lot of overlap with the life of Tom Stoppard. Um, and it's true that, you know, I know some people he knows, and I've been to a lot of his plays, but he's quite strange to me. He's an other person. You know, and and I I think people partly read biography for that sense of otherness. What is it to not be me? We all want to not be ourselves. You know, we all long to be someone else as well as being ourselves. You never can be. You've always got to go on being yourself. And so the best way out, if you're not reading fiction <laughs> um, or not going to the theatre, is to, is to read a life of someone else. It's so hard to get the balance right on a big, rich, full life like Stoppard's. Hermione Lee has been criticised for including too much content about his social life, while other critics have complained that she goes into too much detail about the plays. I think it's up to the reader to skip the bits that don't interest them. There's no doubt that the overall effect is comprehensive. Tom Stoppard made a very wise choice in picking Hermione for the job. She gets him and brings energy and affection to her portrait. Perfect casting. Her next biography will be of the novelist Anita Bruckner, whom Hermione feels sure would not have wanted such attention in her lifetime, being famously private and reticent. Life Sentences is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Music is written and performed by Amanda Brown from her album Slow Chocolate, published and licensed by Lily Pilly IP. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences.